What you're about to hear is the fusion of entertainment and enlightenment. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Hello, America. Welcome to July. Uh, June was Pride Month. July, Humility Month. I think we should, you know. I was in church yesterday and I was reading the scriptures and I'm, you know, uh, thinking... Wow, there's a lot of talk about pride here on how bad it is. One of the seven deadly sins. Um, And I'm sure Pride Month also includes a couple of the other deadly sins. But um, you, uh, you follow that up with what we should be doing, and that is humbling ourselves and being grateful for what we have. Uh, So I declare July Humility Month. A perfect follow-up for Pride Month. We begin the program in 60 seconds. Stand by first. This month, we are celebrating the creation of our country, the the ideas behind our country. And we uh, also uh, are protecting the heroes that fought to protect those rights. Sadly, though, there are Americans today who who don't have the freedom of life and liberty because it was taken away from them before they even had a chance to fully experience it outside of the womb. These are your fellow Americans, and they're also fellow children of God, and Preborn is the largest pro-life ministry in the country, and they help to fight abortion by providing free ultrasounds to women in crisis. They're about saving lives, saving souls, saving these moms, they, the service they provide goes way beyond ultrasounds. Um, it goes into prenatal care for up to two and a half years after the birth. It's a fabulous group of people. If we're told to uphold the truths of the Constitution, let's acknowledge that babies in their mom's wombs are created equal and endowed by their creator with those certain unalienable rights that cannot and should not be taken away. One ultrasound is just 28 bucks. Five ultrasounds are $140. You want to donate anything? Get involved. Just dial pound 250, say the keyword baby. That's pound 250, keyword baby. Or donate securely at preborn.com slash back. Sponsored by Preborn. Stephen Mansfield is uh, joining us. He is uh, a great, great writer. He has written many books, The Faith of Barack Obama. Um, He was uh, also The Faith of George W. Bush. He's written biographies of Booker T. Washington, George Whitfield, Winston Churchill, Pope Benedict, uh, Abraham Lincoln. And he also wrote the book Killing Jesus. Publishers Weekly describes his book Killing Jesus as masterful. I think it's genius. I haven't even read it, but it's the same name as Bill O'Reilly's book. And I know Stephen's book has got to be better. So it makes me happy. Uh, Stephen Mansfield, welcome to the program. How are you, sir? Good morning, sir. How are you? And don't get me in trouble with Bill now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I want to talk to you about several people that you have written about, but let's start with seeing that we're, you know, on the, um, the doorstep of 4th of July and Independence Day tomorrow. Uh, Let's, let's spend some time with uh, Lincoln because uh, Lincoln is a fascinating guy, 
before he starts running for office. He's kind of a dark dude. He had a really tough childhood, and then he goes kind of off the wagon a bit. Lincoln was a very unusual character, and I think it's why he's one of the most beloved in our history. And what people often don't know is that he suffered horrible depression uh, growing up. Uh, and this was largely due to the deaths that he endured in his life, as you, as you allude to. He lost his mother when he was nine. He lost his sister when he was, she was, uh, he, when he was 19. We, famously, he lost the first love of his life, uh, Ann Rutledge, uh, when he was in his early 20s. And then, of course, throughout his life, he would lose two sons and then have to endure all the over 700,000 deaths of the Civil War. So friends said that he dripped melancholy while he walked. They often had to stand suicide watch. Uh, he missed his first mm. wedding date because he was considering suicide. So a um, very dark figure, uh, very sad, beset by depression. And, uh, uh, and this, uh, this affected everything from his faith to his understanding of the Civil War. So, yes, it's, it's, he's a very, very complicated character. Now, is it true, Stephen, in your research that um, uh, Lincoln really his father was a horrible guy and alcoholic and a christian and um and lincoln rejected christianity at first uh when he first kind of goes out on his own because uh of what he thought a christian was due to his father and he apparently yes yeah was not a moral character at first Lincoln. Well, he was he was a kind of character. Uh, the father was a kind of character that we are we are familiar with from literature and history. Very religious, very sentimentally, emotionally religious, and yet brutal to his son. Um, right. One of the best stories I can tell to describe this is that when Lincoln was president, he once spoke to a room full of ex-slaves and quite literally said that he knew what slavery was because he had been used like a slave. And he was referring to his first 20 years, 21 years of life when he was under his father's dominion. And of course, the people in the room kind of looked askance at each other like, well, Abraham Lincoln was never a slave, but that's how he spoke of it because that's how oppressed he felt himself to be. And yes, you're right. When he left his father's home at the age of 21, he owed his father his labor before then. Uh, he went and thoroughly rejected Christianity, uh, read a lot of the rationalistic writers, Paine and others, um, fell in with a lot of religious skeptics in New Salem, and uh, was v- actually carried a Bible around town just to argue with people about it. So, yes, he was the village atheist wow. for a lot of years. And he also was very promiscuous, but freaked out because he thought he was going to get some venereal disease. Is that true? He- Exactly true. He was a uh, fought in a, a war called the Black Hawk War, and he apparently had some time with prostitutes and later, yes, worried that he had problems and maybe even his depression was related to various kinds of venereal diseases. So, yes, very immoral. Uh, he never gave himself much to drink. He tried drink for a while and really lost control. Uh, but yes, immoral, mm-hmm. atheist, angry. We know the type. And uh, that's what Abraham Lincoln was for a good number of years. And what was the turning point in his life? The turning point probably uh, came gradually as he began to know 
uh, ministers who were better than the ones he had known in his early life began to, we all know that he became a state legislator and uh, began to live in Springfield, moving from a town called New Salem. And when he got there, he fell in with, a, with, a, with Christians um, who were articulate, who were learned, who were well-read. They weren't just the, the teary-eyed sentimentalists, um, emotionally imbalanced, kind of like his father was. And so he, he, began, he came among, you know, I, to, the simple way to say it is a better class of Christians. Um, the turning point really came when he met a Presbyterian minister named James Smith. This is a little later in his life now. Um, he was a congressman. His uh, step father-in-law had died, and he was taking care of the estate. He, he pulled a book down in his father-in-law's house written by this Presbyterian minister, James Smith, kind of a cross between Billy Graham and Daniel Boone. Uh, but the man could really write, and he made a lawyer's case for Christianity, which, of course, Lincoln, as a lawyer, respected. And that right. really began to turn things. And then, of course, uh, a progression began that carried him all the way through the White House years. So he did say, though, uh, I wasn't a Christian um, when I got married, I think he said, I wasn't a Christian when I, uh, lost my son. Um, but I became a Christian at Gettysburg. Do I have that right? That, that is a quote that is out there. It's hard to verify. Um, there's no question okay. he had a deepening when he stood at, at Gettysburg. Scholars tend to discredit that quote. It's, it's the sort of the same thing with all famous men who spoke well, like Churchill, others. Did he say it or didn't he? Scholars tend to discredit that, but I don't think there's any question that Lincoln had a profound experience when he looked out on the graves at Gettysburg, and, um, and he, he, he alluded to it often uh, to visitors at the White House. But, but, but the thing that really deepened his faith, the real things that really changed things were the, the deaths of his boys. Um, imagine that he lost two boys and lost them, by the way, to mm. horrible diseases that lingered a long time. Um, and this just sent Lincoln already a depressive, right, right to the edge of sanity, really. Um, and, and of course, famously, Mrs. Lincoln was known for her un, just a loud, uh, extreme bouts of grief. She would fill the house, later the White House, with with howls, the, the servants would describe them like the howls of wounded animals. And so it wasn't just Lincoln's grief that he had to deal with. It was the grief of his, of his wife that would go on for weeks and be terrible. Um, he finally took her to a window one time and pointed at a mental institution in, in D.C. and said, Mother, if you don't get control of yourself, we'll have to put you there. And that got her to tame herself a little bit. But Lincoln, Lincoln dealt with agonizing deaths his whole life. And he said once famously that he was haunted by the sound of, water, of rain falling on graves. Well, he had so many graves in his life that he would visit and, of course, had to attend funerals of people he loved. So all of this, uh, though it sounds dark, is what caused him to search. And it was at those moments that James Smith, this, this Presbyterian minister at First Presbyterian in Springfield, stepped into his life and gave a as the scriptures say, a reason for the hope that lies within Christians. I have a rational explanation. And Lincoln bought it. And I think that was those times were the turnings for him. You know, you say that, um, you know, the way you describe him while he's in the White House and her, I can't imagine that a president would have been able to remain the president today um, just with the media and everything else. I mean, that's disturbing. It's, I mean, you know, close to insanity. 
Absolutely. When he lost Willie, um, named for William Wallace, by the way, uh, in, in, as a young boy oh, in the wow. White House, Lincoln would close the, his office and sit in the dark all day, every Thursday. So he would grieve sitting in the dark. Now, imagine that a modern president turns out the lights, closes the West Wing or, 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 or the Oval Office and um, sits in the dark, uh, just just in a depressive grief all day long. People, of course, would question his sanity. But this is what Lincoln did for quite some time until finally a fairly famous minister made an appointment with him and said, sir, what you're doing is not right. Don't you know? That if you believe on Jesus Christ, you will go. Though your son cannot come to you, you will go to him. And this was a massive turning point in Lincoln's life. And he stopped wow. those Thursday darkness depression sessions, um, and he began to search the scriptures more thoroughly and buy copies of this minister's sermons. And so, uh, again, Lincoln is on a journey. There's a progression. You don't have one moment of a full turning, but you definitely have a leaving of the atheist years and a deepening, a constant deepening, largely inspired by his recovery from grief and from from the deaths of those he loved. When he was um, president, um, they say he didn't care about slavery. I don't believe that to be true. Um, and I, uh, it's my understanding that he had a relationship somewhat uh, with uh, John Quincy Adams, who kind of passed the torch to him on anti-slavery. Is that true? It is. It is. They, they did know each other. They did correspond in the early years. And it's, it's folly, of course, to say that he didn't care about slavery. I mean, uh, not only do we know about his famous trip to, to New Orleans, where he said, if I ever get a chance to hit this thing, speaking of slavery, I will. Um, also, when he was a congressman for a very short period of time, only about 12, 14 months, um, he proposed a bill that would have outlawed slavery in D.C., um, he proposed the same kind of bill in uh, Springfield back in back in Illinois. Um, so the idea and, and by the way, we have some, some of the most fascinating writings we have from Lincoln are where he's sitting alone at night in his office and he's sort of wrestling with God, wrestling with his conscience. What does providence want? God can't be a for the same thing and against it at the same time. He would, right. he would wrestle with his conscience on on. Uh, you know, scraps of paper. And fortunately, when he died, his secretaries kept those for us, and we still have them. But to say he didn't care about slavery is silly. Of course, he he, he deeply cared about it. And it actually was part, just since we're talking about his faith, it was part of the reason that he, uh, you know, was troubled about the state of Christianity. He couldn't believe that Southern clergy would make a case for slavery from Scripture. And since he identified with the slaves deeply because of his own labors, he, 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 was, he was troubled by all of that. We're talking to Stephen Mansfield. Uh, he wrote the book Lincoln's Battle with God. He also has done biographies of a lot of other people, and we want to talk to him about that. Uh, but a little bit more with Lincoln here in just a second. First, let me take 60 seconds, and then we're back to Stephen. Um, Mike Lindell has specialized for years in creating the best pillows you've ever laid your head down on. And uh, when I tried his My Slippers, I realized, oh, this is what it's like if you strap pillows to your feet. Um, my pillow is still having their massive closeout on their uh, slippers. It's a huge sale. If you use the promo code Beck, you're going to get the all season slipper for just twenty five dollars. I think it's a limit of ten. And I've told you the last couple of days, one of my best friends, uh, Robert, he's like my brother. He told me uh, I'm a slipper prepper. What are you talking about? 
I have every quarter, I buy the limit of the slippers because I'm afraid they're going to stop making them and I want to wear them the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah, that's how good they are. That's how weird my friend is, too. MyPillow.com. MyPillow.com. Click on the Radio Lister Square. Grab a pair of the all-season slippers or 10 of them for just $25. They're usually uh, $149.98. Uh, limit 10 per uh, order. Just go to uh, MyPillow.com. Hit the promo code back, or you can call them at 800-966-3117. MyPillow.com. 10 seconds. Station ID. Stephen Mansfield, he is um, the author of Lincoln's Battle with God. Um, Stephen, when did the tide turn on Abraham Lincoln far as public opinion? I know when he was first in Baltimore on his way to the White House, you know, and there, there's a plot to kill him. He really understands how much of the country hates him, um, and he's... You know, when he's uh, going into the war, it's not going well. Uh, when did the tide turn for him? When when did he become Abraham Lincoln? Well, it's interesting that the tide never did really turn in a massive way for him during his life. Um, he was hated. He wow. was vilified. Of course, he was hated by half the country uh, in a, during a civil sure. war. But he wasn't all that popular in the North. And as you've just said, you know, as he makes his journey by train into D.C., he's having to hide and even dress like a woman at one point, be covered up by his bodyguard. Mm -hmm. um, I would say, frankly, that he, his, the tide really didn't turn until his death. Uh, people, because he was victorious uh, in the Civil War, because he was killed on a Good Friday, um, people began to realize that this was our redeemer president. This was our, our, our liberator, the great emancipator. And, and by the way, because he did things like the Emancipation Proclamation, saying publicly that he did it out of a covenant with God. Um, people remembered these things when he was killed. And I would say that it's fascinating now. I live in D.C., as you know. And um, so it's fascinating to find that people, the, the tourists who flood by the millions into D.C., the person they most are eager to explore and most identify with, with D.C. and American history is not Washington, for whom the city is named, but Lincoln. And so right. the tide turned yeah. for him, I think, just shortly after his death when the words and the deeds were remembered and the legend arose. Yeah, it's amazing after his death how he was our beloved president and you know, they dragged his body all around uh, for on the morning train and and uh, and everything else. His death um, is, to me, absolutely horrible uh, the way he was treated. I mean, the doctors I mean, this was the medicine at the time. The doctor comes and sticks his finger in the back of his head to try to dig the bullet out with his finger. Um, and I can't remember Laura Keene, I think was her name comes up in her white dress, brand new white dress, uh, to have uh, to hold the president so she can get the blood stains on her dress and then go on a tour making herself look like Florence Nightingale. I mean, he was treated horribly all the way till he was dead. 
No, it, it was horrible. He was carried across the street from Ford's Theater to the Peterson House. You're exactly correct. I mean, we were talking about a level of medicine one click up from bleeding people with leeches. Uh, you're right. Yeah. The doctor put his pinky finger into the wound. Um, it, it was it was it was badly done. He was ill served at, at every turn. And yeah, people already knew that he was going to be a legend and they wanted to be associated with it. People were cramming into the room and what have you. Um, but yes, it, it's a, it's a, it's his death is part of the great lore. He was even betrayed by the, uh, he would, he basically, he and Mary Todd Lincoln double dated with a young major, the major, major Rathburn and that man, um, betrayed him basically it would be proved cowardly and left him to be killed, should have stepped up and fought off John Wilkes Booth. Um, what's interesting, I think, what's, from the standpoint wow. of his faith about his death is that as he was dying, as he was just before he was shot, he was continuing kind of a flirty conversation with his wife from earlier in the day when they had taken a carriage ride and they had been discussing what they would do after the war. And he said to her, sitting right there in the booth, after the war, we'll, we'll not go back to Springfield. We'll travel abroad. I would really like to go to the Holy Land. I would like to walk in the footsteps of the Savior. Amazing. Amazing. And he did just a few uh, a few the hours Glenn later. More with Stephen Mansfield in a second. Um, let's uh, let's talk about uh, our sponsor this half hour with Stu. Hi, Stu. Thank you so much, Glenn. Uh, let me tell you about GenuCell. It's the best in skincare. And if you uh, you're looking in the mirror and you're seeing dark spots that you don't like so much, you can get them to go away. Uh, but not on their own. You can use, of course, the Dark Spot Corrector from GenuCell. Right in time for all the summer fun, the Dark Spot, dark spot Corrector has not one but three cutting-edge ingredients. It goes to work fast on to target sunspots, dark spots, liver spots, and even discoloration on both your face and your hands. You'll be amazed at how fast this works, and you'll love the results. You can enjoy the summer sun. You can enjoy the beach and the barbecues without having to deal with those embarrassing spots. With GenuCell, you'll see the results or your money back, no questions asked. Go to GenuCell.com right now. Get your dark spot corrector. It's GenuCell.com slash Beck and get 70% off GenuCell's most popular package right now with free shipping, free returns, the best luxury skincare you've ever used, all at 70% off. GenuCell.com slash Beck. GenuCell.com slash Beck. It's G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash Beck. Back with more of Stephen Mansfield. We're going to talk to him about Winston Churchill, Pope Benedict, uh, George Whitfield, and Booker T. Coming up. This is the Glenn Beck Program. We have Stephen Mansfield on. He is the author of many books. Miracle of the Kurds, which was selected as a book of the year. Also, I think we've had him on before for his book, A Manly Man, which I just love. Um, but he has written uh, biographies of Lincoln and his struggles uh, to find God. Uh, George Whitfield, Booker T. Washington, Winston Churchill, Pope Benedict, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, and Abraham Lincoln, and not the Bill O'Reilly book, Killing Jesus, but another one that I, I have to read. Stephen, um, I, gotta, I, I, wa- I wanna go through a couple of the figures that you have written about. Can we start with Pope Benedict? What really happened at the end with Pope Benedict? Was this kind of a coup? 
I don't believe it was a coup, but I do believe the pressures came too much. You definitely had uh, corruption going on at a certain level within the Vatican, and he spoke about that openly, and that was happening at a time of his declining health. So was it a coup? I don't believe so, uh, but I, I do believe that he was unable to control the events of the transition, and things went away mm. he would not have preferred. I don't think he's that happy right. with Pope Francis, uh, as a lot of conservative Catholics aren't. <laughs> Um, but right. nevertheless, I, I don't, I don't think it was an open coup. I think it just was an older man realizing he couldn't deal with what he had to deal with in the Vatican right. and then having a transition go what I think he would consider it badly. So I have three versions of Booker T's Booker T Washington's book, uh, up from slavery. And I have an, a first edition original. Then I have one that came out about 15 years ago. And the preface says, we're not sure how much of this story is true. And I have a the latest copy of Up From Slavery where it says right in the front, this book is a work of fiction. Tell me about Booker T. Washington. Well, Booker T. Washington is one of the most controversial African-American leaders. I love him. I'll tell you, frankly, I'm an advocate for him. Me too. Um, and, and the reason is, of course, that he advocated uh, industry, uh, labor skills, using the marketplace, using the free enterprise system for blacks to ascend. He certainly believed in their civil rights, um, but he, he believed that the best way to ascend was through the vehicle of free enterprise and being people of industry. Well, that does not play well with many contemporary African-Americans, certainly doesn't play well with the scholarly set. And so they vilify him and he's disliked and, uh, uh, other other scholars, other philosophers, other black writers are preferred because they're a little bit more left-leaning um, and they're a little suspicious of capitalism and free enterprise. But Booker T., I think, um, the founder of Tuskegee, great man, first African-American who was really super prominent and also dined to, first to dine in the White House. He was a favorite of Teddy Roosevelt's. Right. Um, I think right. he did amazing things for black Americans, but he is absolutely vilified. And that's why you're getting the different accounts there at the beginning of your books. And it was the, the, um, it was at the time when, uh, if he would have lived a little longer, uh, perhaps things would have been different, but it was a, he was at a critical juncture, was he not, with, uh, was it Marcus Garvey? No, who was it that was um, Joshua uh, du Bois. kind of the, yeah, Du Bois, uh, the foe of, of Booker T. And when Booker T died, that's when Du Bois really kind of took off, was it not? Exactly, exactly. He didn't live long enough, unfortunately, died early, and his enemies, uh, in a sense, wrote his obituary. And we've been dealing with yeah, that ever since. But those who dive into it in term, and get into the original sources and, and study the man without bias uh, can only conclude he was a great African-American hero. Winston Churchill, one of my favorite guys. Uh, he is uh, he's funny. Um, he had a prescription for his alcoholism during prohibition. Uh, I think he's, I think he's one of the only guys that, uh, truly understood what had to happen in, uh, or after world war two. I think he's, he judged, uh, Russia for what it really was. Um, but over in India, he was kind of a, kind of not, not a, not a good figure, and I struggled with that, Stephen, for a while until I realized 
I was asking if he was a good man or a bad man. And I think the answer to that is yes, just as we all are. Um, we have a battle and we're great at some things, not good at others. And he regretted a lot of the things that he did um, because he, you know, came from a different generation towards the end of his life in India. Is that true? It is true. It is true. He definitely was a man of his age. He loved the empire. He hated seeing it decline. He hated the loss of India. Um, he insultingly called Gandhi a naked fakir, which means beggar or you know street person in, 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 in Hindi. Um, so he was insulting, and he did have some of the racist a- attitudes of upper class uh, English at that time. I'm not excusing him. But, but hang on, just a second. So did, but so did Gandhi. Gandhi exactly. also. Exactly. was a racist. Gandhi, absolutely. Gandhi spoke horribly. Of, he lived for a while in South Africa before he returned to India. Yeah. He was a lawyer, and he yeah. spoke horribly of the of the Africans and the blacks and didn't think they... So, yes, if we start chucking yeah. out of our lives and out of our thought, every person in history who had uh, even lightly racist attitudes, we're going to have an empty history book because almost everyone, Correct. black, white, yellow, whatever... Um, had these early early attitudes so we we should forgive them draw from their gifts and build a new history but uh yeah definitely churchill um had, was a mixed man as much as i admire him as i'm looking i'm sitting in an office with a picture of him on the wall right here i deeply I admire him but no no question he had his Me flaws too. uh i often think where is the churchill of our day i think he was so unique um, that I, I think he makes the other leaders uh, at that time um, really look weak in comparison. They were strong, but he was just a different guy. He had vision. He had passion. He used humor. My favorite story is that he's in the White House in the early days of World War II. Uh, Congress is suspecting him of inflating what he needs in terms of help and material from the U.S., uh, he's taking a bath in mid, at midday in the White House, as he often did. Um, Roosevelt is wheeled. Remember that he had polio wheeled into the room. Yeah. He's embarrassed that there stands uh, a, a dripping wet Churchill with a towel around him. And Churchill seizes the moment. He, he stops Roosevelt from being wheeled out of the room and says no. And he pulls the towel off of him. Now he's standing there wet and naked, bulbous, pink. And he says, I have nothing to hide from the president of the United States. He was making a point <laughs> about the political issue, but using his own nakedness in a bath to make that point. Boy, did that story. Oh, his he's so TV funny. And turn the tide. He's a great man. And we don't have many yeah. like him. Um, George Whitfield, a name that most people don't know, um, but I contend we may not have had the American Revolution and freedom as we understand it without him. I could not agree more. In fact, my book is called Forgotten Founding Father. Whitfield, of course, yeah. with Wesley, the great revivalist in England, made seven trips uh, from the south to the north in the American colonies. And some scholars call him the first intercolonial event. He's the first person who really captured imaginations because all of the all of the colonies would have been more tied to London than to each other. But this revival that he led tied them all together. And he began to warn the colonists and the colonial leaders, your liberties are being, quote, spied out and they're being taken from you. Be careful. What's happening in Parliament is is going to destroy your religious liberties and this revival that's happening. And. So he warned them, and 
there's a there's a scholar by the name of Heimert, and he developed the Heimert thesis, which is that had there been no Great Awakening, there would have been no American Revolution, as you say. So we owe we owe George Whitfield, this Anglican priest, quite a bit. And it's amazing that the um, the first fighters uh, went into his uh, crypt, opened it up, and took a bit of his black robe to pin it on their uniforms. Uh, that's how that's how crucial he was to many Americans. Well, they saw him as the father of their revolution, and they wanted a little piece of his black preaching robe uh, or his collars and pins of their uniforms, not not as talismans, as though they put their trust in a piece of cloth to keep them safe, but right. as so almost a flag, almost a flag of identity and right. loyalty, because he he was the man who had summoned them to this 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 valiant fight. So, how did we forget him? You know, Glenn, I'll tell you, uh, he is actually buried in a broom closet in Newburyport, Massachusetts, um, in, a, in the basement of a church. Well, he is forgotten. There are statues of him. There are, uh, you know, of course, scholars remember him, but you are absolutely right. He, like Booker T. Washington, we are embarrassed by him. We don't want to attribute, attribute uh, the this cause of our revolution with a, with a preacher, a revivalist, a Billy Graham type. Uh, in our popular mind, and so we have absolutely forgotten him. But I, I think that, again, I agree with the Heimer thesis. Had there been no Great Awakening led by George too. Whitfield, there would have been no American Revolution. Well, you couldn't have Thomas Paine writing common sense if they hadn't heard all of that common sense from the pulpit. I mean, people That's don't exactly understand right. how, they don't understand how the preachers, um, and I, I think because of this, we're in the shape we're in, Preachers didn't shy away from uh, events of the day because they were framing it not as politics. It was framed as these are your rights and you need to understand that they come from God and you better stand up for them. That's exactly right. I'm sure you know the phrase, the Black Regiment. These were the preachers who yeah. uh, donned military uniforms and fought the American Revolution. But but if you go back and do what scholars often do, which is scan the colonial newspapers, you find that the preaching, the pulpits aflame with righteousness, aflame with the liberty cause, mm-hmm. um, are really what inspired people to rise up. It, it wasn't just politicians. It wasn't just anger towards the king. They were the, it was these preachers in, in the mold of George Whitfield and the way the newspapers repeated page after page of their sermons and their proclamations and their warnings, that really is the intellectual heritage that created the American Revolution. And by the way, the blaze I named after George Whitfield's paper that he published called The Blaze. Um, one last question. As you look through history, are you optimistic about our future, pessimistic or neutral? I am optimistic, and the reason is that we have had times like these before. They forced good people to the fore. Um, there were there were shakings, there were upheavals, there was destruction uh, that happened during times like this. But ultimately, long term good em- emerged, and I, I am a long term optimist and believe that that good things are coming, and that good people are seeing the times for what they are, grieving them, but then arising to their best, and that's going to change our history. So I'm an optimist. Good. Glad to hear it. Thank you so much, Stephen. We'll talk again. Stephen Mansfield, um, you bet. A a great author of many biographies. Look him up, Stephen Mansfield. Uh, Our sponsor this half hour is Goldline. Um, There's a great economic piece out that was out last week 
uh, that Goldline has on their website and their Twitter page. And it's it's worth uh, reading. And while you're at Goldline's website, goldline.com, sign up for their free buyer's guide or give them a call to find out how precious metals can help you. Um, among other things that are in this piece, gold has a part of uh, an increasing role in people's position in on Wall Street because we are looking at the dollar collapse and I, it kills me. I've been called a kook for saying this for years. And now uh, you've got the wall street journal. You have uh, the New York times saying it's inevitable. It's just a matter of time. I thought that was crazy. I thought that would never happen. These it, everything's math gang. Everything is math. Two plus two always equals four, no matter what you want it to say, it's always four. Gold has a great uh, uh, value in um, in a currency collapse or inflation because it holds its value. And as the dollar goes up, it appears that gold, sorry, as the dollar goes down, it appears that gold is going up in price. It's not. It's just holding its value. The dollar is not. This week in honor of 4th of July, Goldline has their special on Betsy Ross one-ounce silver rounds. With every Betsy Ross one-ounce silver round acquired, you're going to receive the same one-ounce Betsy Ross in copper at no additional cost. Call 866-GOLDLINE. 866-GOLDLINE or Go to goldline.com. This is the Glenn Beck Program. You know, I got to tell you... (laughs) The world is so upside down. I don't know if you saw this, too, but uh, AOC has called for the investigating and possible impeaching of members of the Supreme Court. Um, she said, if Chief Justice John Roberts won't come before Congress, here's what she said. If Chief Justice Roberts will not come before Congress for an investigation voluntarily, I believe that we should be considering subpoenas. We should be considering investigations. We must pass pass much more binding and stringent ethics guidelines where we see members of Cong- uh, where we see members of the of the Supreme Court potentially breaking the law, as we saw in the refusal, <laughs> you know, with Clarence Thomas to recuse himself uh, from cases oh implicating his wife in in January sixth. There also must be impeachment on the table. We have a broad level of tools to deal with misconduct, overreach, and abuse of power. And the Supreme Court has not been receiving the adequate oversight necessary in order to preserve their own legitimacy. And in the process, they it, themselves it, have been le- stop, destroying stop, stop. the legitimacy. Stop, idiocy. Where in the Constitution do you find oversight? I mean, as a constitutionalist, I would have loved to have been able to claim oversight when they were passing all kinds of crazy things. But now they they are demanding oversight. So Congress is the watchdog of 
one branch is the watchdog of the other branch? I don't. I no. I don't think so. That's not the way it works. I. I just. Yeah, a lot of people don't like AOC, but I really do lo- love the earnestness of her stupidity. Like, there's something really charming about how hard she's trying. Like, I. She really is trying to noodle <laughs> these things out, and I don't know. It's like she watching is. your 14 year old give a speech about something they don't really fully understand. It's like. It's kind of cute. It's adorable in in, in a very, you know, society destroying sort of way. (laughs) And you're right. And I'm I'm looking forward to see how all of this works out. It's going to be fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. The Glenn Beck Program. 